Hello, welcome to a bonus episode of Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. It's just me today, no Katie. Huge relief as far as I'm concerned. Today's episode is an interview with Yasha Monk, an extremely important writer and thinker who will be introducing himself shortly. There are two versions of this episode. The, the free version, which is about a half hour, includes our conversation about the deep threats facing liberalism on all sides at the moment, as well as an exciting new project Yasha has launched to help stem the tide. The patrons-only version then proceeds for another 25 minutes, in part to discuss an article Yasha recently wrote for The Atlantic about a spate of unjust social media-fueled firings, the true origins of the gender wage gap, the racial politics of police reform, and some other stuff as well. One minor pre-self-correction from that section. At one point, I say that Majdi Wadi, the owner of a Middle Eastern food purveyor in Minneapolis, got fired. He didn't get fired. I misspoke. Rather, his business incurred a great deal of damage as a result of a social media outrage. This will all make sense in context, I swear. The whole reason I was able to research, record, and edit a bonus episode of Blocked and Reported is because of our patrons. Please, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash blocked and reported and becoming a patron. For $5 a month, you'll get at least three bonus episodes per month, early access to the free episodes, and the ability to take part in a conversation with a wonderful group of people, 2,000 strong and growing, who enthusiastically discuss each and every episode of the podcast. As always, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, email us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com, find us on Twitter at at the bar pod, or check out our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blockedandreported. Thank you so much for listening, and please enjoy my interview with Yasha Monk. Yasha Monk, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on, Jesse. Will you do my job for me and tell listeners who you are? Although I bet, I suspect many of them have heard of you, but uh, for those few who have not. I, I think assuming that anybody has not heard of me is actually a microaggression. I'm already offended. Um, sure, I'm Yasha Monk. I'm a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Um, I'm also a contributing editor at The Atlantic. I've been uh, working a lot on the rise of authoritarian populism. Um, for the last years, I have a book called The People Versus Democracy on that. Um, and like you all, I've been getting increasingly worried by some of the ways in which it now appears to be uh, the turn of the left to give up on basic principles of a free society. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, mostly I wanted to ask you about two aspects of that. One is an, an article you wrote that, um, let's get to that in a minute. There's a really good article in The Atlantic about some of these terrible firings we've covered on this podcast. But first, you're, you're launching sort of a countermeasure to some of the creeping illiberalism you're seeing going on, right? I am. So, um, look, I think, you know, I have a sort of little theory of how to think about American arts and letters over the last 40, 50 years. So if you'll indulge me, I, I, I want to sort of explain that. Um, sure. You know, I think for a long time, all of the mainstream institutions of American society, with some obvious and, and serious blind spots, but, but basically... Um, operated on the basis of a set of uh, philosophically liberal principles. So be they believed in free speech and free inquiry. Uh, they believed in the possibility of communicating uh, with each other across the lines of race and religion, um, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, they never were sort of devoted to the uh, uh, defense or the uh, propagation of these ideas, but they sort of, uh, it was the operating system. Um, uh, and that was true of places like uh, the New York Times or Harvard University, or Brookings. I'm not saying that they didn't have deep injustices, that there were real blind spots in the application of those principles, but that was at least their self-understanding. Right. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, you had gradually the rise 
of a set of uh, ideological intellectual counter-establishments. So a bunch of conservatives said, you know, we don't really feel like our views are adequately represented in the New York Times, so we're going to start building this devoted counter-establishment. And they build things like the National Review and the Heritage Foundation. Um, libertarians followed suit and said, you know what, we don't really fit into either of these camps, so we're going to build you know, Reason Magazine and AI. And then the far left uh, took over certain university departments and you know, founded things like, like Jacobin, or earlier they had things like The Nation. Um, now, what's happened over the last five or ten years is that a lot of these mainstream institutions have increasingly been appropriated by the anti-liberal left. Um, a lot of the liberal assumptions that were driving those institutions uh, are coming under challenge in important ways. And, you know, we'll talk about some of that uh, when we get to, you know, these firings um, that have been going on in the last few weeks. But, but that's only one example. Um, and so that puts people who believe in free speech and free inquiry, uh, people who uh, uh, believe in the promise of actually being able to communicate with each other across the lines of, of, of race and religion in the kind of way that as your great podcast with the poor sufferer of a Robin D'Angelo uh, diversity <laughs> training points out, uh, you know, people like D'Angelo do not believe it. Right. Um, uh, that puts us really in the defensive. Well, actually, hey, let's unpack that. What, what do you think it is that she doesn't fundamentally believe in? Because I think this is important. Well, I mean, you know, I think you've made this point and, and Katie made this point. You know, I just can't imagine that Robin D'Angelo actually has friendships with people who are of a different race um, because she seems to think that, you know, white people share such a deep essence of who they are um, and that the experience of people who are not white is so fundamentally different but not only do you always have to walk on eggshells around each other, you can't actually truly understand each other. You can't actually uh, truly have a, a, a common view and experience of the world. Now, look, I'm deeply aware of the fact that there are certain experiences of disadvantage and discrimination that I won't make, right? Um, uh, I'm not, I don't have to maneuver uh, sexual aggression um, and objectification in the way that a lot of uh, women do uh, right. in this world. I don't have to fear the police in the way that uh, a lot of black people in this country legitimately, uh, understandably, fear the police. Um, and so if I don't make a special effort to listen to them, to communicate with them, I'm going to miss important aspects of what's going on in this country. Um, so, so I need to make that effort. But, but what people like D'Angelo want to say is not that I come to understand them and that I come to care about the injustices they suffer for reasons of my own, because I have principles of what I think the society should look like and police violence or sexist discrimination or sexual violence violates those principles. Um, rather, I'm supposed to say, look, you're more oppressed than I am, so I'm never going to see the world through your eyes. Um, I'm just going to sort of uh, take back my own political judgment and defer to you on all these matters that matter to you. I'll just, you know, punt all of these decisions and, and whatever you say go. And it's not because we have a shared political solidarity. It's not because we have a shared vision of society. It's because, you know, you know better than I, so I'll just shut up and take myself back. That's neither 
a vision of civic friendship, uh, nor is it a vision of political solidarity that I think is, is, is either appealing on substantive ground, nor likely to actually uh, uh, work in the world. And, and not only that, but the point I've been trying to make is the, the only examples I can think of in most human life where we just defer entirely to another human being without, without turning our brains on at all is if it's like an infant or a child or your boss where you don't feel empowered to speak up. Those are the only other examples I can think of where I would ever say, okay, whatever you say goes, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, right, a two, right, a two-year-old you. asks you to cut up, you know, the sandwich in a bizarre way. You're not going to start arguing. You'll do it <laughs> with your friend. Yeah. You'll say, "Why?" <laughs> right? Yeah. I want to understand. That's what, that's what I find de- dehumanizing about this. It's like if I, if a, um, you know, if a if a black commentator interprets things in one way and I disagree, and I feel like I have the uh, sufficient knowledge of the situation or background. You know, there's situations I would defer, obviously, if I don't have that background. Like, if someone's telling me something about African-American history, which is not an area of mine. But, yeah, I mean, this deferential style, I find I find so dehumanizing. And I think – do you think that there's a small subset of mostly white liberals, like D'Angelo readers, who are okay with that, but that most people do not like being told to, to sort of shut up? Because that's sort of my theory. You know, I come at this from a very strange Perspective, and I want to, you know, be very careful to to emphasize that I'm not comparing these two sets of experiences because they are different in important ways. Um, but you know, I grew up Jewish in Germany, and uh, that had lots of advantages over being black in the United States. One of which being that you know I could walk into a shop or a bakery or whatever, and people had no idea that I'm Jewish. Right? It's not something I could sort of choose to some extent. Uh, when to uh, confront this and when not to confront this. Um, and so I didn't suffer many of the disadvantages that African-Americans do suffer today, right? But, but the one sort of thing that always strikes a resonance with me is that people like Robin D'Angelo make me think of some of the really creepy philo-Semites that I met in Germany. People, people who love Jews and who broadcast it. Yeah, who are like, oh my God, you're Jewish, you know... I'm so sorry for the Holocaust and Hebrew is a beautiful language and, you know, Woody Allen is the best. Um, right. This is before Woody Allen was, you know, um, uh, 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 cast out. Um, but, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and it made me feel so alienated because I realized that I would never be able to have real friendships with these people. I would never be able to, to get them to see me as an equal because they would always... Uh, you know, you know, the fact that I'm Jewish would always define who I am for them more than anything else. And I hated it. And one of the yeah. reasons why I came to the United States is that I felt that I wouldn't always be defined by my Jewishness in that way, in a place where being Jewish is much more normalized. Um, so, yeah, so this is why I think a lot of this stuff that, that D'Angelo and so on are pushing really is inimical to a, to a liberal vision of a world, to a vision of a world in which we don't pretend that, that discrimination doesn't exist. We work together to create a world in which your race and your ethnicity and your religion uh, matter less or need to matter less than they do now, um, where they don't have to define you. For you can choose to let it define you if it's very important to you that you're Muslim or Jewish or, or, or Catholic or whatever it may be. Um, and to, 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 to pick up uh, the sort of strain of a narrative, um, you know, liberals at the moment are at this unique disadvantage because we used to sort of implicitly control these mainstream institutions, but we no longer do. 
In fact, if we say one wrong thing, we might be fired from all of them. And unlike conservatives or libertarians or even the far left, we don't have these counter-establishment institutions which articulate our point of view in a proud and self-conscious way, which might give refuge to some of these people um, if they are fired in the mainstream institutions. And as a, as a result, I think that there is, um, I, I, I hate this term, but there is this kind of silent majority of liberals in this country. Not a silent majority in the, like, like it was in the days of Richard Nixon, who are sort right. of reactionaries and want to turn back the clock, but of people who, who generally abhor Donald Trump, who generally abhor the kind of uh, you know, authoritarian attack on the values of a free society that unfortunately now dominates the Republican Party, but that also generally abhor not anti-racism, but what people like D'Angelo and, and, and so on claim uh, anti-racism consists in, people who want a society in which we can think of each other uh, as individuals with due uh, attention to the disadvantages that some groups suffer in this country with due determination to overcome those advantages, but not in a way where we're always going to treat each other uh, with uh, these condescending kid gloves uh, that, that I experienced as a Jew in Germany and that I think uh, 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 the poor people who have uh, Robin DiAngelo in their lives uh, probably experience. And so the short answer to, to, to a long question is that's what I'm trying to found. I'm founding a community called Persuasion, um, which is going to be uh, an experiment. Um, we'll see exactly what shape it takes on. Um, from the beginning, we'll have some great people writing for us. We're going to have some uh, incredible life events. We have some of the best writers in the country uh, leading book clubs, some of them on their favorite uh, works. So George Packer is going to lead a book club on some works by George Orwell, for example. Uh, we have uh, Thomas uh, Chatterton Williams uh, leading uh, a, a book club on uh, one of his favorite writers. Um, uh, we have Jonathan Haidt leading a book club on John Stuart Mills on Liberty. We have Gary Kasparov leading a book club for us. Um, uh, and, 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 and the hope is to create a place where we can articulate our vision, where we can proudly stand for these liberal principles in this moment, but we shouldn't be ashamed of in the way that sort of it sometimes feels like in the public discourse. Um, and, 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 you know, create an esprit de corps, create a community of people uh, who, who share these beliefs. Um, if, am I allowed a shameless plug, Jesse? Yeah, that's part of the reason I want to have you on. Um, so, so the name of the venture is uh, Persuasion. Um, uh, the reason for persuasion is threefold. First, because we're united um, by a political principle, which is that we want to live in uh, a free society in which all individuals get to pursue a meaningful life irrespective of who they are. Um, the second is that we deeply believe in the social practice of persuasion, um, and that's why we will loudly defend free speech and free inquiry. Um, and the third is that we want to do this in the spirit of persuasion. So I think some of the people who are annoyed um, by the craziness that's going on um, uh, sort of become too tempted to, to just troll or to just mock. And we want to actually persuade. We want to build the best, the most affirmative, the most celebratory case for the principles uh, that we believe in. So please, please, please come and sign up for our community um, go to uh, persuasion.community um, and, and you know, join some of these live events. Be sure that you, uh, you know, receive uh, these articles in, in the form of a newsletter. Um, 
and we're going to have a podcast. Um, and I think, you know, very much what you and Katie are up to and what we're up to, um, uh, you know, um, simpatico with each other. That's persuasion.community is the website. That is exactly right. Cool. Let me run a theory by you and, and you tell me if this makes sense to you. I think that there's a subset of people who see things getting a little bit crazy and because they have lacked other options, the left could be losing some people to the right. I think that's absolutely part of what's going on, right? I mean, uh, uh, look, this is a really complicated and scary political moment. Um, and, you know, I'm horrified. You know, I think of myself as being on the left. I have been all of my life. Um, and I'm horrified by some of the things that are going on, on on parts of the left and that obviously, as we'll talk about in a minute, have have now real influence on, on some mainstream institutions. I'm also horrified by Donald Trump. I mean, I'm more horrified <laughs> right. by Donald Trump. I'm horrified by Herr Bolsonaro. I'm horrified by, by Viktor Orban. Um, and so anybody who sort of, you know, I think it's absolutely right to shout from the rooftop about some of the, frankly, witch hunts that are going on. That is not what a free society looks like, and there's no shame in stating that very, very clearly. Now, if you only do that and start making excuses for the things that Donald Trump does and start making excuses for the things that Bolsonaro and Orban are doing, then you don't believe in the principles of a free society. Um, right. You're just you know, annoyed by the people in your social circle who are annoying, Right. And so, uh, you know, what I really want this venture to be is a, a positive venture, a venture where we can actually formulate why we're annoyed by some of this stuff and why, you know, we care about racism every bit as much as Robin D'Angelo. We care about uh, sexism every bit as much um, as, 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 as people who might call themselves woke. Um, but we believe that we have better principles and better ideas and better policies um, to create a society that is more just, that is more fair, in which we all have a, a good and, and, and a decent place. And it's time not just to point our fingers and say, na 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 na, aren't these college students stupid? Uh, but to say, hey, what's going on on colleges and at the New York Times and at other institutions is a real social trend that could be very dangerous. But the response is not to say they're, very, you know, they're stupid and silly, the response to say, here are the principles that explain why it's bad to uh, put up with these witch hunts. Here are the principles that explain why we do need free speech. Here are the principles that explain why certain forms of standpoint uh, epistemology, which basically say, if you happen to have a different skin color, I will never really be able to understand you, are not going to create a, a fair, vibrant, multi-ethnic society that I want and you want and I think you know, 99% of your listeners want. What I found sort of frustrating is that um, the standpoint stuff is a good example. So so at this point, you will see literal professional thinkers and writers saying things like, listen to black people, as though, as though there is one black opinion on any subject, as though this doesn't reflect millions of people who are, like any other group, constantly arguing about something. What I found is that when lefty thinkers like uh, Matt Brunig or Freddie DeBoer, they come to mind, and I'll include show notes uh, with these examples, they, they try to actually critique this and say, well, okay, what does it mean to listen to black people given how much black people disagree? How do we know which black people to listen to? I found you can never get a straight answer. People just sort of keep chanting these and other mantras and, and don't actually engage in, in the sort of critique you're trying to spark. Or how, do you, how do you actually make people sort of uh it's it's like a little bit of debate me bro because these are important principles and, and people should have to debate them right 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think this this point is fundamental. That uh, you know, actually, a, a congresswoman said this recently. That you know, I no longer want any black. I forget the exact phrase. It's something like you know, I no I no longer want any uh, to, to 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 listen to any black people who are not a black voice. I no longer want to listen to any brown people who are not a brown voice. And so <laughs> right. this idea is that if you are say somebody like Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is a very thoughtful left wing uh, African American writer, um, you know, who wrote. A, very interesting. Uh, I mean, I think one of the most beautiful portrayals of somebody who's shaped by the most extreme forms of racism that I've read in the United States is his portrayal of his father, who 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 is you know grew up in segregated Texas in the nineteen fifties, um, and 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 the sort of way in which he fought his way towards an education, towards getting a PhD, towards a life of learning. It's it's a deeply moving portrait. You know, and somebody like that would say, well, Thomas is not being, is not a black voice because he disagrees with me. I mean, that is deeply offensive. I mean, actually deeply offensive. Um, and, you know, I think it's always interesting to look at actual polls. Um, and when you look at uh, the opinion of black people in this country, they are very often vastly different from the sort of rich, highly educated postgrad. Uh, uh, white liberals like me um, uh, who say, hey, you know, I want black voices which happen to agree with the standard opinions that, you know, highly politically interested progressive uh, uh, white liberals who have Harvard postgraduate educations have. Um, uh, and when you look at the actual polls and, you know, most African Americans don't believe this. So one obvious point that people have talked about a lot is the fact that most black people in the primaries voted for Joe Biden rather than some of the people who claimed to speak for the black community. Uh, but, you know, when you look at polls um, uh, within the black community, for example, on policing, you end up getting a very, very reasonable picture, as you do when you poll Americans as a whole, actually. So what you see with, uh, with, with you know, in this one poll of, of black voters that, that's, that's quite recent from a week or so ago, is that police violence is a huge priority for them, uh, that they... Uh, as I believe, um, recognize the, the, the racially disparate impact of policing, uh, that they uh, worry about that a lot, uh, that they're angry about it, but also that they don't want to defund the police. What they want <laughs> right. is what all of the rest of us want, which is when somebody is committing a crime against you or when you're worried about something that's happening in a community, you want to be able to call somebody who's going to come and sort this out and you don't have to live in fear of them. So, of course, they're angry about the lack of police accountability and 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 the racial uh, uh, the racism and the racial disparities and how police treat people, of course they want to remedy that, but they don't think the solution is not to have a police. They want a decent police. What I found amazing was there is a front page New York Times story with I think three bylines, nine contributing writers, an accompanying episode of their daily podcast, The Daily. I wrote about this in my newsletter. Um, they did not once reference black public opinion. They All they did was, quote, individual black people and activists who are in favor of defunding or abolishing the police, which is fine. You should get that part of the story. But in terms of basic journalistic norms or presenting an issue with proper context in the most important paper in the world, this to me was an example of sort of institutional collapse where it's very important we present the defund abolition side because that's who, like, we and our friends are. That's where we are. We're on the right side. And just ignore majority black public opinion, which I found insane. Well, I, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is uh, perhaps 50% trollish and, and the other is deeper. I mean, I've been amazed to learn in the last few years just how powerful, even at the time of Corona, when there's no literal dinner parties, 
the thought of what will people at the next dinner party say about me is. I think you can predict, you know, there's all these conspiracy theories about, you know, newspapers have these very clear editorial lines that are passed on down from the editor-in-chief or, um, you know, you know, CNN ran all of this, you know, video of Donald Trump because the photo was good for the bottom line and it's all these sort of very rational economic decisions and, you know, um, publications will just publish whatever gets the most clicks. No, publications will publish whatever make the editor and the writer look good at the next dinner party. And yes. they will definitely abstain from publishing anything that might get pushback at the next dinner party. Except now the dinner party is 24-7 on Twitter, and you can see how your, how your opinion is received at the dinner party in real time always. Yeah, and like while you're at dinner with your spouse, you get people shout at you, uh, you know, rudely if you do something <laughs> that, that, that differs from, from that consensus, which, right. which, which sort of, yeah, absolutely. Now, here's a problem, right? The problem is that we need the New York Times, uh, as an institution in American life, it's important to have a, a newspaper of record that does high-quality reporting, that represents a range of views, uh, that that creates some semblance of commonality for citizens in this country where, where they can orient themselves towards it. Um, you know, the New York Times can survive if, you know, the range of opinion that is evident in its opinion pages and, as somebody recently pointed out, in its news pages... Um, is, you know, between the 10th and the 50th percentile of a left-right distribution in the United States. Um, you know, that allows the New York Times to be an important institution that's mistrusted perhaps by conservatives, but, but that, you know, has some real pull in society. If the New York Times' range of opinion ends up being between, uh, you know, the 0th and the 10th percentile of a left-right distribution in the United States you're just not going to survive as an institution. I mean, it might no. turn into the nation or it might turn into some sort of smaller version of a guardian or something like that. But it's just not going to have the systemic importance that the New York Times now has. And A, that's an existential financial risk for the New York Times. Um, but more importantly, it's a risk to all of us and the rest of society because it's good to have something like the New York Times if we want to keep this country sane and if we want to make actual progress on some of these values uh, that 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 you know we care about, yeah, no, I definitely I share that diagnosis, and I think you see some people like it, it, when news outlets face financial difficulties, you'll see some people saying, "Oh, go woke, go broke," as though they embraced the wrong values and then had financial difficulties. My my take is there are these horrible structural factors that make it almost impossible to make money in the news business. And then in this moment of crisis, rather than broadening out, which will increase the probability they can save their, their own asses, they're just, they're just getting more and more insular and more and more concerned with what the other woke outlets uh, believe. Does that strike you as correct? Well, again, I actually don't think that the fundamental uh, principle at work is an economic one. I think it's just... Uh, people are, are worried about their own staff. People are very, very worried about scandal. They're very worried about, um, you know, the insinuation, uh, even if it's sometimes for really not very plausible reasons, that they're bigoted. Um, and so they just go along with it because it's the path of least resistance. And so the most extreme voices capture uh, the spirit of these institutions not because they're in a majority, even within those institutions, certainly not because anybody at the top has decided that this is in the economic self-interest of the institution, 
um, uh, bit simply because uh, you know people don't have a courage of their convictions, and that's part of why I think it's so important persuasion.community to to, <laughs> to to have a space where we can proactively articulate those those values. Let, let me let me let me tell you about something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I think there's a sort of sim- syndrome of what I call not to fireism, where you know some of these demands get made. And the sort of instinctive response of well-intentioned liberals who don't quite have a courage of a conviction is to say, well, I see where you're coming from, but aren't you going a little bit too far? And that is a really unhelpful response. Um, a, it's unhelpful because, frankly, it's a little bit tone deaf because I completely understand that, uh, you know, activists are going to say, well, I mean, the police is murdering people in this country and you're saying let's not go too far in caring about that. I mean, you know, that doesn't seem like a sensible response. Um, and B, because it, it, it mislocates the nature of your objection. My problem is not that Robin DiAngelo is too anti-racist. <laughs> My problem is that she has a batshit crazy conception of what it is to be anti-racist and how it is that we would actually build a more just society. And so I think yeah. what we desperately need is a place and a space where we get to articulate these things in a, in, in a proactive way, where we get to have more self-confidence, where we get to explain to people that there is a space between uh, the, sort of Robin DiAngelo on the one side and, uh, you know, a sort of uh, reactionary focus on the evil of uh, Robin DiAngelo and actually ceasing to care about the real fate of our society on the other side. That's such a good point because it, it, I mean, it makes me think of some of the discourse around like Antifa where the problem isn't that my, to the extent I have gripes with Antifa, it's not that they hate fascism more than I do. It's that I think they're embracing an unaccountable system where anyone can commit violence against someone else and then say they're fascist. And, and I say that as someone who has a friend who is one of the handful of journalists assaulted by Antifa. So I think you're right that we sort of see that framing when we make, it's not like my problem with Antifa is like, no, they're too against fascism. It's they've embraced a mindset for how to fight it that I think uh, is deeply liberal and could backfire and could hurt people. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's important that we fight for possession of these terms. Um, uh, I mean, quite clear with Antifa and even more strongly with anti-racist. I, I, I see people on, on Twitter and so on saying, oh, no, 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 don't call yourself an anti-racist because that is sort of the crazy ideas of D'Angelo and so on. It's like, no. Yeah, I hate don't, that. I hate don't that. Give, I mean, like, it's the same. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. It's the same the other way around, right? Like some trolls in 4chan decide to appropriate the OK symbol for themselves um, uh, and then it becomes sort of a white supremacist symbol and suddenly we're like not supposed to make the okay symbol. It's like, no, screw that. Don't let a couple of, you know, alt-right assholes and trolls and 4chan, uh, you know, claim the symbol. Why? Right. Um, and, and exactly the same way. Don't let D'Angelo claim the word of anti-racist. I'm a proud anti-racist. I deplore racism. I'm proud anti-fascist. I mean, I have a family history um, that, that gives me many reasons to both be anti-racist and anti-fascist. I just don't think that telling whites that they have a race essence that they have to be conscious of and that will forever make them different from black people is a great way of being anti-racist. I think it actually puts you pretty close to being racist. Um, and I don't think that saying, hey, a, a, a decentralized, devolved group of little splinter groups should get to make autonomous decisions about who is a fascist and then be fully justified in violently attacking them 
is a good way of fighting fascism. Um, so yeah, I'm an anti-racist. I'm an anti-fascist. I that doesn't mean I like Antifa and doesn't mean I like uh, Robin DiAngelo. If I understand correctly, then you're you're against Antifa, which means you're pro-fascism. You've summarized it uh, accurately and beautifully. Yes, that's what we do here on Blocked and Reported. We 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 uh, listen to other views charitably. Um, well, okay. Let's one last pitch. the The site is called Persuasion Community. That's what it's called. Okay, I would uh, recommend everyone check that out and and sign up. Sign up. Give us sign an address. Make sure that we can reach you about the great book clubs and so on. I'm actually going to be doing that as soon as we get off this interview. Okay, so now that we have. Um, pitched this this very important new thing which i'm excited to see unfold let's talk about this article you wrote for the atlantic recently called stop firing the innocent now this is about three people who have recently been fired as a result of the sort of post george floyd protests and climate two of them we've already discussed on this podcast i'm just going to gloss that quickly david shore was fired for tweeting a study about the utility of violent versus nonviolent protest and activism majdi wadi ran a palestinian american business he's palestinian american um sort of a grocer and halal food provider he got fired over his daughter's racist post even though he fired her even though this was when she was a teenager I'll include links in the show notes for folks who want to learn more about those incidents, both free articles and our podcast about it. But for our conversation, Yasha, let's focus on this guy, Emmanuel Cafferty. Could you just sort of run down what happened to him? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the most powerful of his stories in some ways because he's, um, you know, complete normie, right? I mean, this is a, a Latino guy. His his dad is half Irish, half uh, Mexican. His mom is Mexican. American, um, uh, who, you know, works for the San Diego uh, electric and gas uh, company. Um, you know, he locates underground electricity lines. Um, he told me he's never, you know, voted in an election in his life. He just has no real interest in politics at all. And one day he's on his way home from his job. Uh, so, 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 uh, so one day he's driving back from home in, you know, this sort of truck by this company, SDG&E. Um, and, you know, he has sort of his hand, his arm dangling out of the, uh, out of the van, you know, perhaps at some point he sort of cracked his knuckles so or he sort of, you know, um, was like moving his fingers a little bit. Some white activist, um, believes that he's doing an, uh, okay gesture. Now, as you referenced briefly earlier, uh, you know, these trolls in 4chan a few years ago tried to appropriate the okay gesture for themselves by sort of claiming that it stood for WP or white power. Um, and then some white supremacists have actually started to use that gesture. But, you know, to like probably what, I mean, 60%, 80% of Americans, it's just the okay gesture. Um, to, right. to some people who are diverse, it's uh, a, a symbol that's used in that context. Probably more people know that than know that this is supposed to be a white power symbol. So this guy starts following him and sort of gets in his face. Um, and he says... You know, he cusses at him, says, do it, do it, do this gesture again. You know, he sort of seems to be, be taking a photo or perhaps a video or whatever. So, you know, this guy, Emmanuel, who's very calm, very impressive guy, you know, I talked to him a few days ago, just seemed sad and, 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 and thoughtful and, and kind, um, says, you know, I don't know, I thought about calling my supervisor to tell them about this, but I didn't even know what to tell them. Like, this guy was like, <laughs> in my face, he seemed really angry at me. Um, you know, he seemed to take this photo, but, like, I, I didn't even know what I would have told my supervisor at that point. So he drives home, you know, parks his vehicle outside of the home, 
And two hours later, he gets a phone call from his supervisor to say that he's been uh, suspended because somebody on Twitter has recorded him uh, or taken a photo of him uh, making a white supremacist hand gesture. Um, by the uh, end of the day, uh, the company comes to pick up his truck, and uh, by the following Monday, uh, he loses his job. Now, you know, the way that he describes this ordeal, and the company, by the way, did not defend itself in any way that would not uh, talk to me beyond a sort of statement uh, that's pretty generic. Um, the way he describes his ideal is like you know, an all-white uh, panel of investigators that appear to have made the mind up um, you know, before he even gets into the room that has no evidence of him having browsed white supremacist boards, having any kind of uh, affiliation with any racist organization, um, you know, at one point, Emmanuel told me he literally sits in the interview and points to his skin and says, look, like, how can I look at my look at the color of my skin? Look at the color of my skin. How on earth can I be a white supremacist? Um, it's all to no avail. Um, and, you know, this guy loses his job uh, over a misunderstanding. Even the guy who took the photo later told a local news reporter, you know what, I probably got spun up about the interaction and sort of misunderstood uh, that gesture, he probably wasn't really doing this hand gesture, which most Americans don't even think is an objectionable hand gesture in the first place. So to, to review, he so he's just driving along doing his job in a company truck. His arms out the window, white guy, apparently on the lookout for subtle racist gestures, thinks he's doing the OK sign, which most Americans, including many listeners to this, I assume, don't even realize is offensive because it's this whole weird online troll thing to make it seem offensive and get people in trouble. The guy asks him to do it again after getting in his face. He does it because he doesn't know what's going on. Uh, video taken of it hours later or one day later, he's just fired. His career's over. Yep. And, and you know, uh, I mean, I found it really interesting to talk to him because, you know, when you talk about um, David Shaw uh, getting fired from his progressive data firm, you know, I really think, you know, David Shaw is absolutely innocent and it's, it's, it's complete madness. But, you know, at least... You know, he's in a progressive political space. He understands some of the things that are going on. He can sort of put it in a context. You know, for this guy, who's not particularly interested in politics, who's not a public figure in any way, um, who's not, you know, part of a political movement in any way, it's just bewildering. I mean, he told me, he told me, you know, if, if I'd made a mistake and I'd lost my job, I could learn from that. I could work at myself. But, you know, this is like getting hit by lightning. Like, what, what, what can you learn from getting hit by lightning? Um, and, and all he wants is his job back. I mean, you know, at the very end of the interview, I asked him, uh, you know, is there anything you want to say? Is there any part of a story that I may not have understood that, that you know, that you want to add to or something like that? And, and amazingly, what he wanted to say is a kind of defense of a company to say, look, perhaps I'm loyal to a Ford but they were put in a really bad position, you know, like there was a you know, storm brewing around them and, and they didn't really know what to do. I mean, so this is just like a, an incredibly nice, thoughtful guy. He was making more money in this job than he ever had in his life. Um, you know, he, he, it was the first time he wasn't living check to check. And now in the sort of absurd name of, 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 of fighting racism, a bunch of, as it happens, white investigators fire a Latino guy for not making a gesture that isn't offensive in the first place. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to convey just how ludicrous this all is. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's so hard to even explain. And what do you, so I mean, I've been on this kick for a while. I think I wrote a piece two or three years ago. I'll link to it about how companies should basically ignore these online outrages. Cause in my view, in most cases, the sorts of people who will get mad at a company over this, uh, they have short attention spans. I think a week later they'd be mad about something else. But how, how do you think you could change the incentive? So is it just a matter of like educating the people who work at these companies that this is how online madness works and you just need to just like hang tight, go into bunker mode for five days and it will probably go away or, or what else can we do? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, well, I have two thoughts. I mean, the first is that companies need to recognize that, uh, it has a cost if you fire innocent people. And that's honestly one of the motivations I had to write this article. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Civis Analytics, which fired uh, David Shaw, which, by the way, has um, a mostly white leadership team. In fact, the list of the leadership team that I was sent by their PR department, by the director of communications, is all white and all male, which is quite a feat in corporate communications in this moment. Uh, they, they scrapped the pictures of the board from the website a few months ago because they realized oh my they would look God. a little bit embarrassing. Um, there was some kind of internal kerfuffle at the company over a recent appointment, which was uh, a white male uh, a friend of the CEO. Um, so, you know, there's this utterly absurd firestorm over David Shaw tweeting uh, a summary of a just-published paper in the country's and the world's probably most pro- prestigious political science journal by a wonderful black scholar, Omar Wassow, um, you know, and they just want to save their own skin and they think, okay, there's this, you know, firestorm brewing, we're in a vulnerable position here. Uh, I'm surmising this is what happened. Um, you know, let's, let's, let's fire this guy, right? Um, and, and, and the truth of it is that companies need to learn that if you sacrifice the innocent to protect yourself in a show of anti-racism that actually doesn't care about racism at all, you're going to suffer bad PR consequences from it. Um, and I think in this case, that probably has happened. And that, I hope, will start to redress uh, some of the incentives, at least a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, when I've been tweeting, the short thing drove me crazy just because it's so outrageous. And I, you know, he's a... <laughs> The world needs 28-year-old data nerds who can help progressives win election. Like, that's the guy you go after. Right. It's, it's insane. And he's so, probably like, I mean, you know, I, I was talking about this weird left-right distribution earlier. I mean, he's probably in like the 90th percentile of the left-right distribution or something, right? I mean, right. he's like really far on the left. The idea that he's, you know, a, a racist fraud criminal is just nuts. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see another thing, any other way out other than exactly what you're suggesting is like raise the cost. I mean, if I was you know, contracting with Civis Analytics and just to think they would treat an employee that it really is a labor issue to fire someone over tweeting something relevant to their work is disgusting. But how do you, um, I guess this, this is a, a challenge for your overall project or, or our overall project. What you always run up against is like, why would you focus on this? Like you have a near fascist in the white house. You have, as you mentioned, Bolsonaro, you have Orban, why do you focus on this stuff when, you know, throughout any moment in history, people are getting unfairly fired, unfairly witch hunted? Why focus on this when there's bigger stuff going on? Do you have like, a, have you developed a good answer for that? Because people are going to ask you that. Yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that I, I don't just focus on that. Um, you know, I was one of the first people uh, to warn about the serious danger that authoritarian populism poses to democracy. I continue to work on that subject. I tweet 
a lot about, for example, the upcoming Polish election in which democracy is really on the line if the incumbent far-right president gets re-elected. Um, so the simple answer is I, I don't focus on this. I focus on all threats to a liberal society. And I absolutely agree that the bigger threat is, is Donald Trump. Now, um, I still think it's worth talking about these threats for two reasons. The first is strategic, that if the American people come to believe that the choice is between uh, Donald Trump and you know a bunch of people who are willing to sacrifice you at a moment's notice if it you know serves uh, the, the supposed ends uh, of, of 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 their conception of justice, they're going to choose Donald Trump. And so one of the reasons I care about this is that I care about beating Donald Trump. Um, and then the other thing is that. Um, you know, I want to live in a decent society. I want to live in a society that uh, actually um, is just and that allows people uh, the fruits of, of, of free discussion and free inquiry. Um, and that I don't think there's always been witch hunts in society. Uh, there's been moments of intense witch hunts. And one of the reasons why we've overcome that is that some uh, brave people at the time were willing to say, um, hang on a second, I, I'm not a part of that. Um, and so uh, it's not like we'll inevitably always be sacrificing some innocent people. I mean, there'll never be perfect justice, but, but there's moments when this happens all the time in an intense way to such an extent that it deeply influences what people are willing to say and do, um, which, which is the real harmful impact of that. Um, and then there's some moments uh, when people mostly feel free to, you know, save a mind about important issues and have actual free discussion. And this matters, by the way, um, to remedy a lot of these injustices. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me give you one sort of silly example, right? Um, uh, you know, there is a real disparity in the earnings of women and men in the United States, um, and I think that that has unjust causes. But understanding the nature of these unjust causes is actually very important if you care about remedying this. Now, the right. way that this is portrayed a lot of the time, not just in the sort of uh, more far out uh, uh, deliberately workspaces, um, but, but actually to some extent within mainstream center-left discourse as well, is, you know, you have two people in the same position in the same company and the boss is kind of just a bit sexist or perhaps implicitly sexist and they're just going to pay the man more than the woman. That actually barely happens. I'm sure there's cases of that, but that's not the main driver of the income disparity. And, and this is largely due to the, the work of Claudia Golden, right? She's a Harvard economist who has looked into this, or do I have the name wrong? Um, yeah, I think that's right. Um, okay. I, I've read various things about this. Um, uh, but, but the actual mechanism is, for example, that you know a man and a woman, uh, both very promising young lawyers, graduate from law school. Um, they are hired by a prestigious law firm, um, and one of them ends up having a kid and, you know, uh, taking some time out and, and deciding that she doesn't want to be working 24-7, um, uh, you know, and probably doing most of the child uh, care work. Uh, and the guy, you know, continues to work extremely long hours. And so by the time they're 35, the guy is a partner of a law firm um, and, uh, and the woman either has changed her career a little bit. Um, or, you know, works at a law firm in a less prestigious, less uh, uh, well-rewarded position. Now, I think that's an injustice, right? I think it, it doesn't make sense to organize society that way. By the way, the sort of partner track at law firm sounds miserable anyway. Everybody's <laughs> yeah. gone through it, is, sort of hates their lives. There's all kinds of reasons for structural reform that would allow for different career paths. 
um, in which women can, uh, you know, can can make as much of a contribution when we're 40 and when we're 50 as their, as, their, as their male colleagues, even though they've taken a few years in which they've worked part-time, for example. Right? That's an important fix that makes life better for everybody and would also help to solve this uh, gender disparity. But if you talk about this, as though the problem is you know, male bosses being assholes and paying the women employees less, or even women bosses being assholes and paying the women employees less, you're not actually going to solve the underlying problem. So one response I would give is, if you care about uh, sexist disparities, if you care about racial disparities, if you care about all kinds of disparities in, in our country, you've got to be able to have a, a good faith conversation about what leads to them and therefore what might and might not remedy them. I've been wanting to write about this because I, I call it discriminationism. It's this idea that whenever there's a disparity sort of downstream, that's caused by sort of in the moment discrimination, like like you say, a manager choosing implicitly or explicitly to pay women less. And in other areas where you see disparities in hiring or in who gets top positions, I mean, just as valid an explanation as far as I'm concerned is we live in a structurally racist society. And kids like me from white suburbs, we have every opportunity from an early age to polish our resume, to build skills. And, and there were black kids in the Boston public school system five miles down the road who did not have those opportunities. So when it comes time to compete for jobs, I had advantages over them. They they reflect themselves in my resume, in, in the appearance of sort of meritocratic accomplishment. So if you reduce like the question of why in some places white people might be overrepresented to the idea that managers are in the moment discriminating, again, you're, you're completely, in my view, not completely, because I think there's some explicit and implicit discrimination in the moment, but you could be missing a pretty big chunk of the pie of why these disparities emerge in the first place. I think that's an important point, and it goes actually to the debate around structural racism. Now, I think, um, it, you know, there's an element to racism that in fact is structural. Uh, and I think the example you, 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 you gave is a helpful one. I'm not entirely convinced that, that the term structural racism is the most felicitous way of describing this in the end, but, but it clearly gets at something important, um, that a lot of the time, uh, you know, what produces racial disparities is not any one agent saying, I hate black people and therefore, you know, I'm not going to pay this person as much or I'm not going to hire this person. Or I hate women and I think women, you know, are bad employees and therefore I'm going to pay this woman less than men. A lot of the time what's happening is more structural. Uh, for example, that women tend to provide more, more childcare and if you have a setup where, you know, your willingness to work 16 hours a day at your, during your prime childbearing years is what's going to determine whether you're a partner or not, that puts women at a structural disadvantage that is both unjust and unnecessary. Um, now, the problem becomes when people insist, and this is a subtle shift that has happened in the last few years, that racism is exclusively structural. That it doesn't matter at all what kind of intentions people have, that we should completely forget about intentions in discussing what the nature of racism is, and the only thing you have is structural racism, because then you come up with, you know, frankly, quite crazy ideas, um, like the uh, like the fact that uh, you know a lot of the sort of avowed anti-racists would say that Barack Obama is a racist because he defended <laughs> right. some policies that, you know, according to them, perpetuated structural racism in the United States. Yeah, no, that that makes sense to me. I guess I mean the other thing I'm trying to get my head around, and and I'll I'll let you go soon because I've um, appreciate your time is. When, when certain ideas become faddish or certain theories become unsayable, like it could really hinder our ability to fix stuff. And I'm sort of restating your position, but I just want to get your take on one more example. 
in the legal system, uh, if you have to rely on a public defender versus you have the ability to hire private counsel, right away, that is a huge turning point in your fate, in whether or not you will end up sitting in jail, whether you'll get a, a you know, favorable plea deal, all sorts of stuff. That really does come down at the end of the day to money. And, and anything money related in our country is correlated with race. But the root cause is either you have or you don't have the money to hire private counsel. And that's the kind of thing where you could think of so-called colorblind fixes like expanding funding for public defenders or, or just all sorts of fixes that could address that that aren't at root explicitly about race. So if you have a discourse where everything has to be filtered into just race – and you're called sort of a class essentialist if you suggest otherwise, that to me is like another reason where where this question of critiquing the left connects with the question of making sure the left prevails. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And again, there's a sort of inherent normative problem and then a strategic problem here, right? The inherent normative problem is that if you try to solve this with a law that is explicitly around race, um, you may actually miss the structure of who is having unfair disadvantages here, right? So I agree with you that given the historical injustice towards African-Americans in this country, the number of uh, black people who have, you know, uh, cruelly long prison sentences because they were not able to get effective counsel um, and they didn't get this advantage of a better pre-deal perhaps even because they're able to hire a good lawyer and, you know, the prosecutor says, oh my God, this guy's going to be a pain to deal with. Let's just give him a deal they're happy with. Um, uh, is much, much higher. And that's that's a deep injustice, and I'm angry about it. Um, now, at the same time, there will be some middle-class black people who don't face those problems, and there'll be you know quite a number of poor white people who do face the same problems, who also get these cruelly long prison sentences. So if you try to deal with this with a law that's just around race, um, you know, you're, you're not really helping one set of people who are, in fact, badly impacted by this. Um, that's the first problem. Now, the second problem is strategic. Um, there's a great study by a political scientist called Rob Ford, not the former Toronto mayor, um, out of uh, the United Kingdom, who asks people two sort of setups of a law in that context that would help, or a program that would help uh, sort of uh, uh, British Asians, which is to say uh, uh, South Asian immigrants in, in the United Kingdom, and particularly Muslims in this context, I believe, um, uh, sort of to help in a job training program that'll uh, get them better chances of finding a good job. And in one setup of a survey experiment, he asks people, um, you know, would you be in favor of, uh, you know, British Asians face these particular problems in the job market? Would you be in favor of a program that helps, uh, you know, British Asians find a job? In the other setup, he says British Asians face particular uh, uh, challenges in the job market about, you know, whatever, so-and-so percent of unemployed people sort of come from this group, would you be in favor of a program that, you know, helps any unemployed person with, uh, you know, who's in need of training to improve language skills or to, like, scoops up their CV or whatever it is, um, you know, 90% of the beneficiaries are going to be British Asian. And right. the difference in public support for these two policies is huge. So people actually don't object when they're aware of the fact that a policy will disproportionately benefit minority groups, at least in this context, in the survey experiment. I'm sure there's different contexts in the history of the American welfare state where you could argue that that worked out quite differently. Um, what they object to 
is the explicit ethnic targeting. And so I would say that these universal programs are just more likely to be politically sustainable uh, and if they're more likely to be politically sustainable, then they're more likely to do good in the world. Yeah, that's why, I mean, in like a sort of perverse way, the fact that America has such a profound inequality problem and, and has been hit by the opioid crisis and just has so much sort of unnecessary suffering, that provides an opportunity because there are millions of white people who are in communities where they face some of the same problems that poor black people face in policing. I'm not saying they're identical. I know you need to be careful about this, but you would think, especially given that there's a general left-right alliance on certain elements of of police reform, that there'd be a real opportunity here to build a, a broad coalition and that you would want to be intentional in your messaging to increase the probability of doing that. Absolutely. I think you can hold two thoughts in your mind at the same time. One of which is there are certain groups in our society that for deep historical reasons and for some deep ongoing reasons, like Donald Trump, um, uh, suffer particular disadvantage. And that's a special outrage, and we should particularly care about remedying some of these disparities. At the same time, there are lots of other people who suffer similar outrages, who bad things happen to as well. And you know, if we can kill both birds with one stone, if we can remedy both of those sets of disadvantages while building a broader coalition, it is foolish not to try and do that. Yasha, thank you so much for joining us. Anything else you wanted to add or, or do you want to give Persuasion one last pitch on your way out the Persuasion. door? Persuasion.community. It'll be great. Persuasion.community. I am genuinely excited about this. We have been talking about this for, I think, months. I, I can't remember when you first mentioned this idea to me, but I, I it, that was a time when something like this is desperately needed and i wish you all the success in the world and i hope a lot of my listeners check you out thank you and let me just say that your podcast and your venture has been an inspiration i mean i think there really is so many of us um who feel like uh we need a community of people to keep each other sane and to uh to talk about these things in in a way that's you know not reactionary that's not just about sort of what's wrong but, but that's thinking about how we can do this better and and the fact that you built such a great community so quickly really uh helped to inspire me to launch this now and you know i think we're very very much related efforts so um hopefully we'll 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 all go forth and conquer thank you yasha that was nice of you not to mention the terrible co-host i'm saddled with but you know she's not here so we don't have to uh Katie is the worst. She's, uh, you know. <laughs> no, Katie's great. I'm very well, lucky. What is it? F fuck Herzo? Is that the, is that the slogan? <laughs> fuck Herzo. Yes. Our, uh, our podcast rally cry. Fuck Herzo. Uh, thanks again, Yasha. This was great. Thank you so much.